This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. After officially firing 2020 presidential election investigator Michael Gableman earlier this month, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has officially withdrawn subpoenas looking to jail Wisconsin mayors and election officials for refusing to testify behind closed doors. The Capital Times reports that several state officials who were served the subpoenas, including Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, confirmed that they were given the official withdrawal statement last Friday. This brings the investigation into the 2020 presidential election one step closer to conclusion, though the investigation is still undergoing litigation in court. Multiple court cases and recounts have affirmed that President Joe Biden won the state of Wisconsin in 2020 by around 20,000 votes and that there was no significant voter fraud in the state. Speaking of Biden, the president will be coming to Milwaukee to appear at the city's Labor Fest on Labor Day. The Associated Press reports that the announcement came earlier today and is expected to tout the Inflation Reduction Act, which the president signed earlier this month. Biden will be appearing at Labor Fest next Monday, along with Democratic Senate candidate Mandela Barnes, though Barnes has not said if he will be joining Biden during the event. After an oil refinery in Indiana caught fire last week, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency has lifted a federal rule mandating cleaner gasoline in four states, including Wisconsin. The Clear Air Act requires that lower volatility gas be sold in Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, and Illinois during the summer months in order to limit ozone pollution. Channel 3000 reports that the waiver was granted over the weekend in order to prevent a disruption of gas supply. The oil refinery, which is owned by BP, says they are still working to restart the refinery and it is unknown when the plant will reopen or when the rule will go back into effect. State Attorney General Josh Call promised to aggressively prosecute those who attack or harass election workers as we move towards the fall midterm election. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Call cited a rise in concerns about potential threats to election workers due to misinformation, saying that he has faith in the state's election system. According to a study by the Brennan Center for Justice, a nonprofit law and policy organization, one in six election officials have been threatened because of their jobs, and more than three quarters of election officials say threats have increased in recent years. Call says that he is planning a public relations campaign for later this year to inform people that intimidating or assaulting election workers is illegal and telling people how they can report any incidents. Call also said that the state Justice Department is working closely with the State Elections Commission to immediately identify any threats. Officials in the town of Middleton are warning of what they call an environmental danger near the Middleton airport, saying that lead emissions from planes are polluting the air near the airfield. Cynthia Richson, the board chair for the town of Middleton, is asking local health officials to ban the use of lead fuel at the airport, saying that the airborne lead pollution could lead to long-term health risks for nearby residents. WKOW reports that 96% of all lead emissions in the county come from airports, with the Middleton Airport making up 32% of those emissions. Lead exposure has been found to affect the nervous system, kidneys, immune system, and developmental systems in children. 
The insurance company covering the city of Madison paid out over $46,000 over a lawsuit surrounding Madison's Police Civilian Oversight Board, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The issue stems from racial quotas in the ordinance dictating who oversaw the board, calling for the board to be made up of at least one member from the Black, Asian, Latino, Native American, and LGBTQ communities, as well as a recommendation that at least half of the board members be Black. But after local conservative blogger David Black a white man applied to the join to join the board and was turned down. Blaska joined up with the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or Will, a conservative law firm, to sue the city. Earlier this year, the city dropped those requirements and settled the case. The city's insurance agency paid Will over forty paid Will forty six thousand dollars in legal fees and paid Blaska one hundred dollars in damages. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 631 confirmed COVID cases in Wisconsin yesterday, with an average of 1,312 new cases being reported every day over the past week. Also over the last week, 12.9% of all COVID tests have come back positive. An average of six people have died every day over the past week here in Wisconsin from the virus, bringing the state to a total of 13,336 people who have died from COVID since the start of the pandemic. Here in Dane County, we are back to medium levels of community spread of the virus, as 128 people tested positive yesterday. 68 people remain hospitalized from the virus here in Dane County. And now, on to today's top stories. Wisconsin is often looked at as the drinking state, and with that title comes severe ramifications. A new report by a coalition of organizations looking to improve traffic safety here in Dane County shows that injuries stemming from drunk driving are on the rise. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. Wisconsin's reputation as a drinking state is ringing true, as a new report from the Dane County Traffic Safety Commission shows that injuries related to drunk driving crashes are on the rise. The report, which was released last week, showed that there were 80 crashes in Dane County between January and June of this year involving alcohol, 41% higher than the five-year average of 57 alcohol-related crashes. Additionally, 11 of the 16 crashes that resulted in a death here in Dane County involved someone with a blood alcohol level higher than .08, the legal limit here in Wisconsin. That report came from the Dane County Traffic Safety Commission, a coalition of public and private groups working to improve traffic safety here in Dane County. Cheryl Whitkey is the co-chair of that commission and executive director of Safe Communities of Madison, a nonprofit coalition of public and private organizations working to make Dane County a safer place to live. Whitkey says that the report is concerning because all of these accidents were preventable. People are driving under, you know, under the influence when um, you know, there are opportunities to take an Uber or just to make different plans so that they can keep themselves and others safe. And I think we just have to get that message out there. Wisconsin has had a long history with excessive drinking. According to the State Department of Health Services, Wisconsin ranked third in the country in terms of adults who drink alcohol at more than 64 percent. According to 2019 data, Wisconsin just closely followed both New Hampshire and Washington, D.C., Additionally, according to 2020 data from the CDC, Wisconsin has the highest rate of binge drinking in the country, with more than 22% of adults saying that they binge drink. 
In 2019, the most recent data available from the State Department of Transportation, almost 28,000 people were arrested in Wisconsin for operating while intoxicated. However, the DOT says that crashes that stem from drunk driving are actually on the decline and are down 29% from 2006. But Wiki says that the pandemic reversed that decline. You know, there's also concerns sort of looking at the the aftermath of the pandemic. You know, I think as a as a community, we're we're all just drinking. There's just more drinking going on coming out of the pandemic. We saw about a 40% increase in EMS calls in Dane County from from people drinking um, to the point of of you know serious injury. And so I think it's kind of stepping back and looking at the way that we're drinking and taking into account that driving and drinking is particularly dangerous and just calling attention to that fact. There isn't just one answer as to why Wisconsin has such a strong relationship with excessive drinking, but Maureen Busalaki, director of the Wisconsin Alcohol Policy Project and extension of the Medical College of Wisconsin, says that part of the problem is just accessibility. Research shows us that um, Wisconsin generally has um, a lot of outlets, both legislature and local governments. Um, have allowed more availability and accessibility to alcohol. I mean, and so we see higher drinking rates, like the easier it is to get and the more places that you can drink happening. And then, you know, there's a lot of excessive drinking. So what can be done to address this issue? Whitkey says that police departments can increase their patrols, but individual responsibility will do more to address this issue. Yeah, well, I think as hosts, it's important to keep a, keep an eye on that, you know, making sure that, you know, if somebody's drinking too much, we we offer an alternative way home or, you know, spend the night, that kind of a thing if they're at home. Servers, I think, also need to keep an eye on it. And then, yeah, just individually, I think plan ahead if you know that you're going to be drinking. Um, you know, either plan on how you're going to get home safely or you know, make make some other plan so that you're not driving impaired. You know, we each have that responsibility. The Wisconsin State Council on Alcohol or Other Drug Abuse have also released 61 recommendations to state and local governments, private organizations, and the healthcare system here in Wisconsin to help cut back on excessive drinking. These recommendations include limiting the number of places that serve alcohol near college campuses, increasing the alcohol tax, and providing additional training to servers to make sure that people aren't overserved at bars. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wagihout. Rural communities often struggle to apply for federal dollars, such as those from grants. But a $1 billion pilot program in the CHIPS Act is expected to help them. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. A program approved by Congress aims to give rural communities a leg up when applying for federal dollars. Municipal leaders in Wisconsin say this kind of help is badly needed in some areas. The CHIPS Act, passed last month, boosts semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. It also includes a $1 billion pilot program to help distressed communities apply for economic development funds. Kurt Witinski of the League of Wisconsin Municipalities says there are 600 cities and villages in the state and the median population is nearly 1,500. 
He says a lot of those smaller communities never really recovered from the Great Recession in 2008. If you don't have growth occurring and your tax base is stagnant, then you're not able to really uh, create the services and the assets that might attract new employers. And then people who grow up in those communities may tend to leave them. Watinsky says the smaller communities that are able to revitalize their Main Street areas often get the help of a local investor. He suggests this grant program could help other towns that lack those kinds of donors. Matt Hildreth, head of ruralorganizing.org, says big cities typically are the first in line for federal grants, but he believes this program could change that. It targets funds specifically to small towns and rural communities and communities across the country that are economically distressed and ensures that they have a shot at getting access to those federal funds as well. He notes the vast majority of communities classified as economically distressed are rural. And Hildreth notes each place has different development needs from more broadband to help transitioning between industries. He says under this pilot, communities will guide the investments. It allows local leaders to have the flexibility they need to invest in the challenges that they see in their specific community. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It is a locally-led approach. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The time right now is 6.19 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT. Madison Public Library is looking to tell stories about overlooked and underrepresented areas of Madison, and they want you to be the storyteller. It's part of the Madison Living History Project, an oral history of Madison as told by the people who live here. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout sat down with somebody from the Madison Living History Project to learn more about the project and why they're interested in these stories. Everyone has a story to tell, and often those stories tell the history of wherever they take place. That's the idea behind the Madison Living History Project, a new project from the Madison Public Library to showcase the history of the underrepresented people and places here in Madison. I'm joined now by Neity Shaw, Community Engagement Librarian with the Madison Public Library. Neity, uh, thank you so much for talking with me. Sure, thanks for having me. So, Neody, just to kick things off here, what is the Madison Living History Project? What what sort of stories are you looking to tell with this? Yeah, so uh, the, the Living History Project overall is actually it's an existing oral history platform that the library has had for a, about five years now. Um, it's a place where we share community stories and images related to Madison's history. So 
in the past, we've gathered stories around different neighborhoods like South Madison, um, also sometimes historic buildings like the Garver Feed Mill. Um, and we also have a collection documenting the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but we know that there's still so much more that we're missing. So this is kind of a new piece of that project. Um, lots of stories, lots, lots of different stories that make up our collective history, some of which we might not even know about. So we are looking for what we're calling story ambassadors, people that we can train to conduct interviews who can tell us, you know, which communities are you a part of, which stories are we missing, and specifically who in the community can speak to those experiences. Who do you know that lived through or contributed to an era in Madison's history that we should know about? Looking at looking at some of these stories then, uh, what, what makes sort of these stories important? What makes these sort of stories stand out uh, from other par- parts of Madison's history? Yeah, so um, there's just lots of things that, you know, we have like there's a standard narrative of what we might all learn about our local history. And then there are the people who lived through different moments that maybe we wouldn't get a chance to meet or speak to, um, you know, that mark different how things have changed over time. Um, a lot of it is how an individual may have experienced something or how they contributed to a change that we wouldn't hear about otherwise. And so with that, what sort of who are you looking to talk to with this project? Uh, who, you know, what sort of community members are you looking to gather some of this information about? Yeah, um, so we do have, we have some areas that we think we're interested in uh, that would, you know, so there's things like, um stories about locally owned businesses or neighborhood hangouts over time, Um, you know, LGBTQ spaces and communities, for example, the Club de Wash that sadly burned down. Um, People who are maybe new to Madison, so immigrants, refugees, people who contributed to social justice movements. We have kind of, you know, all over the board, we have some different ideas here, but we're always, always open to people bringing something to us that we haven't thought of. And the stories that you've done in the past, tell me a little bit about those. Uh, what, what sort of stories have you already to- told? Yeah, so for the most part, it's a focus on uh, history that's looking a little further back. Like I said, we did, we did do a little bit around the pandemic just because that was, you know, a totally unexpected thing that, that popped up for all of us. Um, but otherwise, we've spoken to people who, you know, grew up maybe maybe 50 or more years ago and can tell us about a different version of Madison that maybe we don't have access to or don't know about anymore. And can you give us some of those exa- some examples of some of those older uh, older stories that you've told? Um, so people who had worked in different iterations of Garver Feed Mill and what it is now, um, sometimes it's just, you know, individuals and their life growing up, for example, in the South Madison neighborhood and where they went to school, um, what kind of the social, you know, community life was like at different neighborhood centers, at different park events that they used to go to, um, just what was everyday life like. And now you can find all of those stories that they've already done over at madisonlivinghistory.org. But now sort of looking ahead, this new new sort of phase that you're going for, what's, what, what are you sort of looking for that's a little bit different? Or are you sort of looking for just more similar stories to what you've already done? 
Yeah, like I said, I guess just chapters of history that we have not already done. Um, and we're looking for people who maybe, like I said, have connections in their own community or know of, of people who have stories to tell. Um, and we will be the ones to train you on how to do that. So part of another part of the mission of the Living History Project is not only to build up our own collection, but also to provide resources that support preservation projects. Um, for example, we have uh, personal archiving equipment at the Central Library so people can preserve their own memories, even if they don't want to include them in our collection. So the training aspect of this specific project serves that goal. We will train you on how to do oral history interviews, how to use our audio recording equipment, um, and selected teams would also receive a payment for that too, thanks to generous support from the Madison Public Library Foundation. Now, you mentioned the story ambassadors there, and you sort of mentioned it again there. Uh, what, what sort of mm -hmm. people are you looking for to become story ambassadors? What makes someone a good story ambassador? Yeah, so it's someone who is, you know, connected in whatever communities they're a part of, who are aware of um, experiences and stories that other people they know have lived through, who can maybe, you know, connect from kind of follow the breadcrumbs from one person to another and tell different sides of either a specific era or, you know, a specific topic that we have not already covered. So um, someone who likes speaking to people and getting their stories and listening to them and is a good facilitator in, in helping someone bring their story to light. And if someone maybe isn't looking to become a story ambassador, but is still looking to get involved with the project, is is there opportunities for them as well? Yeah. So like I said, we do have some equipment. Um, it's also information on our the madisonlivinghistory.org website about um, either submitting stories that you've recorded, submitting images to us, or like I said, learning how to preserve your own, your own personal projects. All right. Awesome. Then I've been talking with Niyadi Shah, uh, the community engagement librarian over at the Madison Public Library. We've been talking about the Madison Living History Project, and you can find more information about that project online at madisonlivinghistory.org. Org. Uh, Niyadi, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Thank you. The time now is 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us tonight. Tomorrow is the anniversary of the end of the Birmingham coal strike of 1908. It was one of the few strikes of the era where African-American and white workers joined together for a common cause. Birmingham, Alabama area United Mine Workers are on another strike today for similar reasons today. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong Tomorrow, August 30th, is the anniversary of the day in 1908, following violent state repression 
Union leaders ended a strike by African-American and white coal miners in Birmingham, Alabama, four days after the governor called in the state militia to evict strikers from a tent colony. Armed thugs had terrorized the strikers, lynching one African-American miner, while the press generated hysteria about race-mixing workers. The Birmingham Age Herald denounced a union meeting where a Negro embraced a white speaker in the very presence of gentle white women and innocent little girls. The defeat was a blow to mine workers and working-class racial unity in the South. The strike's biracial nature made it one of the most remarkable labor disputes in the nation's history. A bitter and often violent two-month strike pitted one of the South's few viable interracial unions, District 20, of the United Mine Workers, UMW, against the Birmingham district's politically influential wealthy industrial employers. The crushing defeat set the tone for labor relations in Alabama for generations. The confrontation had been building for decades. The discovery of huge coal and iron deposits in 1871 accelerated the growth of mining. The coal operators saw cheap labor as their competitive edge, the large supply of destitute freedmen and impoverished whites. They were desperate enough to take low-paid, dangerous jobs, and racial divisions made it unlikely they would unite to change their conditions. But District 20 of the UMW formed in 1898. By 1900, when African Americans were over half of the miners, the union claimed 10,000 members. The local included several African American leaders like VP Benjamin Greer, who recruited black miners. In 1903, the district's largest employer, the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company, TCI, ended the union's contract. A year later, TCI led the three largest mine employers in severing relations with the UMW, declaring they would hire only non-union workers. In 1907, the then-largest corporation in the world, the virulently anti-union U.S. Steel, bought TCI. In June of 1908, as the nation was still suffering from the panic of 1907. The operators demanded a 17% cut in wages. Seeing little choice, the UMW workers declared a strike. Only 4,000 of the 20,000 miners walked out on July 7th, but by the end of the first week, some 30 new locals were formed. Over half of the miners struck in the second week. Some of the newly organized had recently been strike breakers. The UMW shut down many mines through mass picketing. Armed confrontations erupted between the miners and company guards. The mines began employing strike breakers. By the end of July, panic gripped the mine owners. The union seemed poised to win supporters in the largest mining operations. Mine owners greatly increased their recruitment of strike breakers and their use of unpaid state-leased convicts. Mine owners also deputized hundreds of armed men to confront the workers and urge the governor to declare martial law and bring in state troops. The strike's most remarkable feature was its ability to unite African-American and white workers, something unique not only in Birmingham, but in American society as a whole during an oppressive period of race relations. One example was a biracial parade of striking workers in nearby Jasper, which enraged Birmingham businessmen who warned such actions would incite racial violence. In mid-August, black unionist William Millen was taken from the jail in Brighton and lynched by two mine deputies. This provoked fierce armed retaliation by a racially mixed group of strikers. In late August, the governor summoned UMW leaders and warned that the legislators opposed efforts to promote racial equality among the miners, declaring a public nuisance. The governor ordered the militia on August 26th to cut down the tent colonies, the strikers' only shelter after they had been evicted from company housing. Four days later, union officials declared the strike ended. Today, 
Over 100 years later, Birmingham area black and white UMW District 20 workers are again seeking justice. The strike has gone on for over 500 days. The governor and legislature are again supporting the company, and the so-called pro-union Biden administration's NLRB is calling on the union to pay over $13 million in fines to the company. The union is contesting the fine. And that is our story for today. For the Passes of Past, I'm Harry Richardson. The new school year is almost upon us, and last week President Joe Biden made an announcement to the delight of college students across the country, the cancellation of $10,000 in student loan debt. To figure out what this means and to learn more about student loans, Friday 8 o'clock Buzz host Andy Moore spoke with Dr. Nicholas Hillman, professor at UW-Madison School of Education, on last week's Buzz. Let's start out uh, in the past, and, and um, if you'd hold our hands a little bit, with just getting us um, to the table with a, 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 the brief history of college student loans in the U.S. When, when did they start, and, and how did they come about? The origin story for st- federal student loans starts in the 1950s uh, with the space race, in fact. Uh, the federal government wanted to find a way to get more people to go into science and to study engineering and things that would compete with Russia. And they decided not to do it with just grants, but they said, let's do it with grants and these things called loans. And so what started off as a pretty niche financial aid program in the 50s, uh, fast forward to 1965, that's when the Higher Education Act, the first federal legislation around higher education massively uh, came into being. And uh, they kind of kept the loan program in 1965 Subsequently, in 1970s, expanded it, and then in 1990s, pretty much took the need analysis away from the loan program, which basically meant that uh, anybody who filed a form could um, receive a federal student loan. So really, in the 1990s, we've seen a lot of change, but it's been incremental for 60 years. It's so interesting that it was motivated by the Cold War at the the start. It is. And, and, you know, something very interesting also is that a lot of those financial aid programs during that era and prior were scholarships to veterans and to military Hmm. servicemen. The GI Bill in the 1940s was kind of a precursor, but that was always a grant, a scholarship, and eventually it became a loan. And so this this transition between grants and loans really tapped into, like, the political mood of the time where there were questions about who deserves a grant and who deserves a loan and all these ancillary issues started to unfold over the years. I want to help the listeners with um, vocabulary here. Um, Just in the first couple of minutes of our conversation, we've used the words aid, grant, and loans. In a contemporary way, uh, what are the differences there and, and and who seeks which? Thank you for clarifying that. I'm so sorry. I jumped right into jargon. Uh, So financial aid generally is kind of like the constellation of um, financial support that students when they're in college can uh, use to pay for college. And to get that federal aid, a student would have to file this thing called the FAFSA form, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. So there's a whole process of getting this aid. And there are rules around how much aid you can get and what you're eligible for or not eligible for. But basically, it falls into three big categories. The aid could either be grants and scholarships, which is money that does not have to be repaid. It could be through a thing called work study, which is kind of a small program, but basically you work to get some money and, and that can help um, through, uh, through paying for college. But then the big one is loans. And loans 
uh, typically do have to be repaid, and there are all sorts of different criteria that go along with the different loan programs. So those are the three main buckets. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, who is eligible um, now? Let's bring it up to, to Biden's announcements of this week. Who's eligible for forgiveness under Biden's announcement, and how will that work? I'm sorry to give you two questions at the same time. That's okay. So eligibility. First of all, you have to have what's called a direct loan. And so these typically are loans from the federal government that have been dispersed since 2010. So prior to 2010, there's a whole different loan program that a lot of uh, undergraduate and graduate students participated in. And I think it's about 10 to 15% of outstanding balances are still in those old loan programs. Uh, and so just kind of keep this in mind, maybe we can come back to it. But but for the current solution, this debt cancellation, it's for these direct loans that typically were loans that were taken out after 2010, and they have to have been taken out prior to July 1 of 2022, so about a month ago. And so if you have loans from that period of time, uh, you could be eligible. Now, there's another trick to this. Uh, there is an income test. So if you have an individual income of less than $125,000, then you could be eligible to have $10,000 of that federal debt canceled. However, if you are in a family that makes um, $250,000 or less, or a household at $250,000 or less, uh, thousand, then you could benefit from that $10,000. So I, I hope I haven't thrown too many numbers out there because there's one more coming. Um, if you had a Pell Grant, which is a federal grant program that does not have to be repaid and targeted to lower income students. Uh, if you had a federal Pell Grant, you could get up to $20,000 canceled. All of those numbers bring to mind how serious the problem is and how uh, much debt students and former students are carrying. How did it get so out of control? How, how, did, how did we get here? That's the, that is the big question. And, and I'll kind of give a, a giveaway here, a spoiler. Um, this cancellation policy doesn't change a lot of those fundamental problems of how did we get here. Um, so tuition, fees, room and board, the expenses that it takes to go to college, those across the board, no matter if it's a public college or a private college, those have doubled or even gone higher since the 1990s. So not just tuition has gotten more expensive, but the room and board, the housing, the other costs associated with going to college have also gotten expensive. Books, supplies, caring for dependents, uh, rent, of course, um, you know, all that stuff. So that's one. It's just been continually rising. Another part, though, like that might be okay if family incomes were rising at the same mm. pace. However, they've not been. So family incomes, median family incomes have been, you know, either plateaued, just sort of staying flat or maybe even declining. But over that same period of time, they haven't grown nearly as quickly. So the third piece to this, we have it's more expensive. We don't have as much money to pay out of pocket. And at the same time, these big grant and scholarship programs at the federal and state level have not kept pace with those increasing costs. So you have kind of this perfect storm of, of <laughs> neglect in many ways and the shift uh, of responsibility onto the individual to pay for college through loans. What are you seeing with your own eyes when you talk to students um, and, uh, and work with students um, with regards to them being able to even hang on and continue uh, uninterrupted through their college education? It is so, that's a great question. It's so puzzling because there is not a single average story that just captures all of the details here. We're talking about $1.6 trillion in student loan debt, 44 million borrowers nationwide. So there's just a range of, of experiences that anybody has had with the student loan system. So I have seen um, student loans affect students 
before they ever get to college. They say, I don't want to take out a loan. I can't pay for college. I'm not doing it. So even if they never take out a loan, you could be sort of affected by the fear of having to borrow to pay for college, the sticker shock, so to say. And so that's one end of the spectrum. But at the other end of the spectrum, I also hear, uh, and frankly, I uh, went to college with loans. Um, I wouldn't have been able to go to college without them. And so mm-hmm. it's sort of, you have the opposite end of the extreme where it's like, you know, these loans stink, but I wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. I have no other option. So neither are ideal, but I do hear the whole range uh, mm-hmm. along that spectrum. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you, you lived it yourself. Um, back to Biden's uh, program of the week here. Um, I think we should include this part. How does the COVID no pay extension work? The COVID no pay extension started in March of 2020. So it's been ongoing for over two years now, and it's ready to expire after the new year. So come January 2023, this pause is going to be lifted. Now, what's been happening during this pause is that if you have one of those direct loans we've been talking about, one of these loans that typically were dispersed after 2010, so most borrowers who went to college recently have these federal loans. Um, If you have one, you've been automatically put into a pause. It's called an administrative forbearance. But what's also nice about this pause is that not only do the student loan borrowers, you know, not have to make a payment, but their interest also doesn't accrue. There's 0% interest going on. So basically it holds harmless all the student loan borrowers from, you know, 2020 until now. Uh, But like I said, in 2023, that pause is going to open up. We're going to end, and that means that borrowers are going to have to start making payments again. What was that? What was that term again? What what forbearing? Administrative forbearance. It's really interesting. <laughs> Seems like even the administration of education gets to sound academic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And and there's a, a rule. There's actually a federal rule that allows the Secretary of Education to hmm. use this authority. It's pretty interesting. That is interesting, especially in these days when we're talking about and re-examining for, you know, serious and, 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 and frivolous reasons what different offices, powers should be or should they be realigned and so forth. Nicholas Hillman is a professor at the UW-Madison School of Education. Um, we talked about eligibility. Who is not helped by these developments? Well, if you have a private student loan, and, uh, you know, one example as a company that um, does private student loans would be a group called SoFi, if that sounds familiar to folks, but uh, banks, um, credit unions, uh, if you have a a loan outside of the federal government, states or even colleges themselves sometimes lend, um, those are not eligible. Uh, And so that's one piece of the puzzle. And that's about 10% of all outstanding debt. Um, And then the other piece of the puzzle, like I mentioned earlier, are those um, those prior to 2010 loans, they're called STEL loans. So look for the acronym F-S-E-L, um, family, or I'm sorry, Federal Family Education Loan Programs. Uh, those are also ineligible to my knowledge. Now, what are eligible are these direct loans, which include parent plus loans, graduate plus loans, and then uh, direct subsidized and unsubsidized loans. There's so much jargon here, but look for those keywords, direct loans and then FEL loans. Direct are eligible, FEL so far are not. We talked uh, a little bit about the fear and loathing sort of on the front end with uh, with, with confronting um, perhaps a shallow pocketbook and the need for loans to start school. But what are some of the implications, especially with some of the students that you're, you're seeing graduate and move on, try to get on with their lives? What are some of the implications of deep student debt for college students and, and going forward? Oh, I can probably think of three things off the top of my head that stand out. One is that there is 
um, a waiver currently. Another authority that the Secretary of Education has and the Department of Education has is to use these waivers to kind of um, uh, allow certain payments to count towards certain programs. And there's one particular program called the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. And after 10 years of public service, loans can be canceled after that period of time. And Give us a, a couple of examples of what kind of line of work that would be. Great, excellent. Um, public school teachers, working with a nonprofit organization, working with a governmental agency, um, any kind of um, nonprofit organization, technically they're called 501c3 organizations, or if you work for state or federal government. So uh, it could potentially affect um, a lot of a lot of borrowers. Maybe some estimates are around 25 up to 40 percent. It's hard to really know for sure. But one thing that I have a lot of students who are interested in and, and they're, they're planning to go into public service or work with a nonprofit or work with a federal agency, um, they are very interested in this public service loan forgiveness program. And so uh, that's one thing that I'm hearing about how do you manage debt after you leave college that's on their radars. And uh, I think it's an important one to keep on, on the radar because there are a lot of changes going on with that, maybe getting more mm-hmm. generous. Pro- um, that's one. Mm-hmm. Two quick ones. Uh, another one is income-driven repayment. So here's more jargon, but mm-hmm. there are several different income contingent plans. They basically make your monthly payment be tied to your income, and then uh, your payments should be theoretically more manageable if you're in one of those programs as opposed to the typical like standard 10-year repayment plan. So, uh, so I hear that re- borrowers are very interested in how to get into those income-driven repayment plans. And once you're in, you can also benefit from public service loan forgiveness. So it all kind of connects in some way. Uh, but I'm also hearing just general concerns about how long is it going to take me to repay this debt? How long is it yeah. going to hang over my head? And, and that can affect people mentally. It can affect their family, uh, you know, their family dynamics. It can affect their consumption, all sorts of things. So um, there's a lot there, but it's navigating the system and then also just sort of staying whole uh, financially. Nicholas Hillman, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Andy. Thank you for the invitation. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new features on the small screen. First is season two of The Only Murders in the Building, a popular campy comedy mystery series on Hulu. Then it's Operation Mincemeat, a well-done movie about a little-known true British World War II espionage plot. It recently started playing on Netflix. You are all persons of interest in this case. Someone's trying to frame this. This is going to be fine. That was a clip from the trailer for Only Murders in the Building, Season 2, of the fun, popular Hulu series. The final episode aired last week, and I must say I really enjoyed it. I binge-watched five episodes, but I miscalculated and had to wait a week for the finale. The last episode, and the entire series, was worth the wait. The campy comedy mystery series returns its major characters, Charles, Steve Martin, as a Fayette TV star, Oliver, Martin Short, a Fayette Broadway director, and Mabel. Selena Gomez as an aspiring artist. The unlikely trio met last season over their shared love of true crime podcasts and became involved in solving a murder in their upscale Manhattan apartment building, hence the title. 
and did their own podcast. They eventually came into contact and kind of competition with the podcaster, Cindy Canning, played by Tina Fey. There's also a fun cameo with Sting, who plays himself. Last season, left us with a cliffhanger. Mabel, with a blood-soaked sweater over the body of their in-building nemesis, building president. Bunny Folger, played by Jane Hodeschall, lamely saying, it's not what you think. Season 2 starts where we left off, and our trio suddenly are persons of interest in Bunny's murder. They are urged to lay low and not do any podcasting. This show takes us deeper into the lives of our trio and adds some depth to supporting characters and new players as well. There's a fine cameo by Amy Schumer who takes over Sting's old apartment and promptly makes Oliver an attractive offer for their podcast. It seems their sudden fame might be good for them career-wise and personal-wise, or is it? Episode 3, The Last Day of Bunny Folger, showed us a more nuanced view of Bunny. The series also gives us a scene-stealing Shirley MacLaine as Bunny's mom. Cara Delavina has a spooky role as Alice, an art gallery owner, who for a while looks like our prime suspect. The series once again pulls off the tricky combination of light tone and seriousness that the first season perfected. There's also some fun inside jokes about popular culture, podcasting, and fan culture. There are a lot of enjoyable twists and turns that keep you guessing until the end. Speaking of the end, it was a pretty satisfying one that sets us up for season three. I, for one, would welcome that development. Now for a pretty good movie set in World War II based on a little-known true story. In the hidden war, the truth is protected by a bodyguard of lies. Its soldiers unseen pray, its heroes unsung. This is our war. And that was a clip from the trailer for Operation Mincemeat, a World War II British spy drama by veteran director John Madden. Madden has done some wonderful films with snappy dialogue over the years. I especially enjoyed his Shakespeare in Love and the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Here he's taken a real story from the book of the same name by Ben McIntyre with a fine screenplay by Michelle Ashford. The movie has a solid cast and is well filmed. Colin Firth plays Ewan Montague a top lawyer who is allegedly retiring, but his friends suspect the truth. He's going to work with British naval intelligence. He's also a man with a rocky marriage who puts duty first as he sees his spouse and two small children off to the U.S. for safety. Ewan and Charles Cloman Danley, played by Matthew McFadden, lead a team in a grand deception. Charles hatches the original idea to use a dead body, give him fake papers, and put him where the Nazis will find him. Ewan quickly agrees to the plan, and helps bring out the details of the bizarre plot. The purpose is to give the false impression to the Germans that the British are preparing to invade Greece instead of their true and most obvious target, Sicily. Ewan and Charles are added in fleshing out the body story, no pun intended, by Jean Leslie, an attractive widow played by Kelly MacDonald, and Hester Leggett played by Penelope Wilton, an old friend of Charles's. There's also a small part here for Johnny Flynn, who plays a young Ian Fleming of James Bond fame. Fleming really was involved in this plot. Part of the film's humor comes from the joke that everyone is writing a novel. All in all, a fine film with an exceptional script and solid casting, especially Firth, McFadden, and MacDonald. It just started playing on Netflix. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Andy Moore, Hetry Richardson, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. 
Thanks also to the Wisconsin News Connection. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Lastly, a very happy birthday to my amazing and supportive mother. To the rest of you listeners, have a great night.